Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to lift up another brother uh, serving as a pastor in this community and his wife, Greg and Tracy Fields. What I want to pray for Greg and Tracy, first of all, in their marriage uh, and Greg's journey in faith with you. I want to pray that that is fueled by worship and wonder and that it spills over first into his marriage and then secondly into his parenting and third into the people that he's serving at Westminster. Lord, I'm thankful for the brotherhood, the kindred spirit, the friendship. Thankful for the manifold wisdom that you have extended me through just the time spent with Greg thankful for the many connections and relationships that he has to even folks in this body. I'm thankful for the profound gifting that you've given him in counseling and thankful for having a chance to have a front row seat to you ministering to people, moving people, changing people, opening the eyes of their hearts through those times together. Just thankful for that gifting thankful for his use of that gifting for your glory. Or two, this morning I want to pray for little Ellie. She's struggling with pancreas issues and just pain and nausea. Lord, we confess and know that you are good and sovereign and attentive and involved and engaged and we share the desire of our heart that you will heal her little body. Lord, in your timing and for your namesake and for your glory, we ask that. To this morning, Lord, I want to ask for the people of God in this next couple of weeks as some significant changes take place in our country, that we, the people of God, can vote and talk and live and speak and sleep and wake as if our God is sovereign whatever the outcome of the next couple of weeks. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from hysteria, from fear, from worry. Lord, I pray that we can have a peace that passes understanding, knowing that you are squarely on your throne two weeks from now, just as much as you are at this very moment. Thankful that we have a good God at the helm thankful that while we vote that you ultimately appoint our leaders so we can trust you all the more. We do entrust this election to you and pray that you will be glorified in and through it and through the next four years and we know in advance that you have a plan for that glory. Lord, in these next few minutes that we spend together, I want to pray, I guess, first for just a peace about the delivery, confess some concern about flying the plane this morning, and I'm thankful that ultimately you'll fly it and you'll land it. And I give that over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I am a little nervous about this message this morning. For some reason, some Sundays you just feel like, you, you okay, I can fly. And then other Sundays you're, you're trying to remember how to, how to take off and land. And um, you're not sure if you're going to be able to do either. So this is one of those Sundays. So thankfully, these are not performances. And thankfully, it's the people of God gathered to have a meal together. So execution is less important than content. So I'm thankful for that. Um, but what it's going to mean this morning is that you will have to be attentive and you will have to work. If you do, I trust that you'll find that there's treasure in store. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing a series of sermons in the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. This is part six, if I'm counting correctly. Next week will be part seven, and then I think there'll be part eight and nine for the rest of October. I mean, November. Yeah, we're in November now. Um, The reason we're spending so much time in six verses in chapter three of Hebrews is because these six verses are so key to making sense of the rest of the book. It's almost like the legend of a map. You need to be attentive to the legend to understand the map, scale, cardinal direction, things like that. These six verses in some ways are the legend for the rest of the book. So we're going to get at, through really camping out in these six verses, we're really going to get at the essence and the point of this letter that we may end up spending another um, couple of years in. Who knows? So I'm going to read the first six verses, then I'm going to let you know where we're going this morning, and then we're going to climb in. And let me, know, let me let you know, too, that I cut this morning's sermon in half between this Sunday and next. I did that this morning when I woke up. So, so we're going to take our time and really savor the first half and enjoy it together. I think you'll find it beautiful. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. That's what we're doing these few weeks that we spend in these six verses. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And here's where we're camping out today. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And in the last part of verse 6, we're going to spend in the last two Sundays of November. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This morning we're focusing on verse 5 and the first half of verse 6. So let me show you what's going on in these verses and then you'll see where we're going. I'll give you a kind of a plan. There are three things that are contrasted here in verse 5 and the first half of verse 6. Different roles, different positions, and different substances. The first one, different roles. He's contrasting a faithful servant with a faithful son. You don't have to think hard to imagine what that might be like. Now, we may not have servants, but you've seen enough movies or you can imagine what that would be like, the difference between the servant and the son. The servant and son are going to have two different levels of access to the master of the household. The servant and son are going to have two different levels of access to what's in the household. We don't have to think hard to imagine the difference between a servant, Moses, and the son, Christ. There's different roles in this passage. There's different positions. He's contrasting Moses who served in, in God's house 
But then in speaking of Christ as son, he mentions him serving over God's house. Those may seem like small differences there, but that's a big difference. Someone serving in God's house and then someone serving over it positionally as the son of the household. And then there's different substance. Moses' faithfulness in testifying to the things that were to be spoken later is contrasted with a big, blank, empty nothing in that passage that's implied. What's implied in that passage, contrasted with Moses testifying to the things that were to be spoken later, is Christ actually being the things that were to be spoken later. Moses testified to the things that were to be spoken later faithfully. And Christ became those things that were to be spoken later. That's where we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time. I want to give you a few more thoughts before we climb into it. We're going to spend the rest of our time just examining one thing that Moses spoke and testified to that Christ became. One awesome passage that we're going to camp out on this morning. Before we go there, I want you to think about this. It is fitting that in John 1, 1, now my Bible falls open to the book of John, and if you've been around a while, you know why. Yours yours might as well. But it's fitting as I'm thinking about this, something that Moses testified to that Christ became. It's fitting that God through John represented Christ as the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That has a whole new meaning in light of Hebrews. Where he's pointing out that Moses testified to the things that were to come, and he's implying through this big pregnant absence that Christ became what Moses testified to. That John 1.1 and John 1.14 passage makes a lot of sense. In the beginning was the Word testified to, and the Word became flesh, boom, and dwelt among us. It's beauty and shocking how a story and a character and his words from 1500 B.C. could be so wonderfully replayed and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ 1,500 years later. It's something worth enjoying, and that's exactly what we're doing this week and next. It's also in light of what's being said here specifically, that Moses testified to the things that were to come, and what's implied pregnantly, that Christ became the things that were to be testified, that were spoken of, that Christ stood on a different mountain 1,500 years later. God spoke to Moses on a mountain, Sinai. And it's no accident that 1,500 years later, Christ finds himself standing on a mountain. And in Matthew chapter 5, says these words, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the word became flesh. It's a beautiful layered statement. That he's obviously going to obey perfectly where none has or ever will. And he is the fulfillment of all Moses said, all Moses foreshadowed, and all Moses prefigured. 
It's beautiful when you see it. Someone that does not believe God's word has got to stand back, even if they don't believe God that he even is, has got to stand back and see the beauty of these sort of passages and these sort of realities coming together 1,500 years later and go, man, now that is beautiful. I can't help but wonder if you're admiring the beauty of that, if that might not be a little early thin sliver of faith. Enjoying the beauty of those sort of things coming together is what faith is all about. And let me tell you something. This is more than a nifty Bible study lesson. It's more than just an interesting reality about Jesus fulfilling a lot of what Moses said and did. If we think about what's being said here in the context of what's being said in Hebrews, it's a pastoral response to a confused and dispirited congregation. You remember the context of the Hebrews church. They're on the bubble. Their faith is on the bubble, and they're considering going back to Judaism, bailing on Christianity altogether, because it's hard and it's dangerous. Granny lit the Garden of Nero, dangerous, as a human torch. They lost their jobs. They're huddled up inside their little house church, And this is the pastoral response. It's more than a nifty Bible study. This equips martyrs. This prepares people to be potent in every context in their faith. This is the medicine that this pastor is giving to this dispirited congregation, to this confused congregation. And if we eat it 2,000 years after they ate it, chances are it's going to keep us from getting dispirited. And it'll keep us from being confused. So this Sunday and next, we're going to look at two passages, two things that Moses testified to that were to be spoken later. The first one is where we're going to be this morning is in Genesis chapter 3. So you can turn there. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a good portion of this chapter. I'm going to read one passage beforehand just for the sake of context. And I'm going to read a good portion of this passage, and then we're going to focus in on a couple of verses within chapter 3 as something that Moses testified to that was to be spoken and fulfilled later in the person and work of Jesus. And we'll be built as maybe the Hebrews church would have been built encouraged, renewed, stirred. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, just for the sake of context. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the knowledge of the tree of, or the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, little side note to interject right here. I don't know if you've ever made anything with leaves. But leaves do something after they've been detached from a vine. They dry up, and they shrivel, and they shrink, and they crack. So just know that a fig leaf loincloth is not going to do a good job of covering your nakedness and shame. A very temporary remedy and not much of a remedy at all. A great example of our best efforts at covering our sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, (laughs) The earliest version of the blame game. The woman you gave to be with me She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. It's your fault, God, and it's her fault. And the Lord God said to the woman, she's a good blamer too, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, without any questions, notice he asks Adam some questions, he asks Eve a question, and he turns to the serpent without any questions. He says, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And in a really abrupt and odd transition, the man turns to his wife and changes her name, calling her Eve because she's the mother of all living. And you're going to understand what exactly is going on right there in a moment. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, much better covering than fig leaves, 
and he clothed them. These words, as well as the rest of the book of Genesis, were written by Moses at some point in their wilderness journey. We don't know where. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. It could have been at any point in that journey. It's likely that the entire account of Genesis was told to Moses and recorded by Moses over a span of time during the wandering experience. I'm imagining the storytelling that must have taken place after Moses comes back from spending time with God. His face is veiled and covered because it's shining having been with God. He's sitting around the campfire with the 70 elders. He's saying, man, let me tell you what God told me today. He told me about our beginnings. He told me that before anything ever existed, that he spoke light in the darkness and that in six days he created everything and then he rested on the seventh. And then he told me about how everything went wrong. He told me about our federal daddy, Adam, and our federal mom, Eve. This book must have been, along with the manna and quail, their nourishment. As the elders go back and they tell their tribes, and the tribes tell their clans, and family by family, this story became the story of their people. And it's what actually fed them likely as they moved crawling to the promised land, knowing that this land had been promised to their forefather, Abram. It must have been their very nourishment. It certainly would have built into them a sense of destiny with the land of Cana. Awesome story. But these words in particular this morning, chapter 3 of Genesis, these words, in these words, Moses faithfully testified to what was to be spoken of and fulfilled in Christ later in a beautiful, beautiful way. In these words, we learn so much about our God and his work in Jesus Christ. In these words, we also learn to do something that I'm not sure that we know how to do. Anticipate. We will learn today how to anticipate. In this passage in chapter 3, Eve is tempted and then she becomes the temptress and leads Adam into sin and both transgress God's one commandment, don't eat from that tree. Some believe this sin took place within the first couple of days of week 2. I found one guy, a rabbi, that suggested it took place on Wednesday because that would be the 10th day in line with the Day of Atonement. If I'm... If they were like me, I don't know that they would have made it through Monday before this sin took place. We know it couldn't have been long because God told them to be fruitful and multiply and he also made them naked and they weren't pregnant yet. So it couldn't have been long into the creation story or into the first few weeks. Here they are, not pregnant yet. I've laughed a number of times about... Brad's quote, the gospel's at stake. Just imagining that conversation. The cultural mandate is at stake, Eve. But here they are at this point, early 
early, maybe Monday, maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, and they've already fallen to sin. And they're realizing they're naked because of their guilt, and they're hiding ashamed. It's here that God comes and seeks them out in the cool of the day, coming to walk with them and a fellowship with them, and he calls to them saying, where are you? Being all-knowing, it's not as if he didn't know. His question isn't to inform him, it's to inform them. His question is more like, my son and my daughter, how did you get here? My son and my daughter, how did you find this place of shame? How did you find the situation where you're hiding naked from your creator? Why aren't you joining me in a walk in the cool of the day? And then he asks a series of questions that also are more about revealing the hearts of Adam and Eve than they are about filling him in on what's happened. And then with the serpent, no questions for the serpent. No interrogation for him. Only judgment and a curse and a hidden treasure. Judgment curse, and a hidden treasure, a profound one. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then in verse 15, the treasure. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That word bruise also means crush. And you shall bruise or crush his heel. You don't have to think long about the difference between getting your head crushed or your heel crushed. You can think about the difference between the two. If you happen to be out in the yard and you see a snake out there that bites your heel unless he's like ultra uber venomous, you're not going to die. But what then can you do with your bruised heel? You can crush his little nasty head, can't you? Big difference between a head crushing and a heel crushing. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now before we consider the content of this curse and the treasure within, I want to show you something that's really pretty sweet about our God. Notice that the judgment and the curse that's meted out on Satan is before the judgment that's meted out on Adam and Eve. And the treasure in there is before the judgment that's meted out on Adam and Eve. It seems God's love was already in motion, having already made a way out of their desperate situation before he even pronounces judgment on them. And then this story has a bookend on the other end of it. Here they are hiding in the bushes with fig leaves as loincloths, really pretty laughable. And then God has another act of grace and mercy, kills the first animal, makes the first sacrifice known to mankind, grabs the closest bison or antelope, come here, sheds its innocent blood, 
takes its skins and makes righteous clothing for Adam and Eve. A beautiful early picture of grace covering their shame and covering their guilt with the righteous clothing of another. Now for the treasure. In verse 15, there's a word for this passage here in verse 15. It's called the Proto-Euangelion. That means first gospel. The first gospel takes place here in this verse 15, and it's an early picture, and in fact, the very first picture of Moses testifying something that's going to be fulfilled later in Christ. It's the earliest, and it's one of the most profound, because it's a story that's going to be applied through the rest of the book. It's embedded within Satan's curse here in verse 15. Two things at play here. First of all, it's a work of grace that God puts enmity. That word means hostile hatred into the heart of the woman and her offspring for Satan. That's a work of grace for God to put that in her heart. Realize in verse 16, he's about to mete out her judgment, but before he even does that, he points out that he's going to put enmity in her heart, hatred, hostile hatred for this serpent and the serpent's offspring. And he's going to put that enmity not only in her, but in her offspring. This isn't just some explanation for why girls hate snakes. There might be a connection there, but it's a thin one. What's really at play here is that God has given women a blessing of a special aversion to Satan and his schemes. A wise man knows this. A wise husband knows this. I cannot tell you how often I have had conversations with Christy where we've we've talked about something where she saw something far before I did, long before I did. She had a radar to something that was off. A wise man will listen to his wife. And consider that she may have some insight that you may not have. I'm thinking about this as well, and I'm thinking about, man, stories like Charles Manson, the kind of grotesque things that man can do, where you hear about a man doing that, and you're going, man, that's bad. But I can almost understand, yeah, man is wicked. Man can do that. But when you find there are women on his team, you go, well, how could a woman do that? There's something built into her that has a special aversion to Satan and his ways because God built that into her as a consequence of the fall, as a blessing. The second thing at work here is that he blessed her with a promise that she would bear the solution to their problem by bearing the Savior of mankind. That her offspring would crush the head of the serpent's offspring. This is why, if you think about it, the next thing that seems like this weird, abrupt shift in verse 20, this terrible judgment is meted out. Okay, now you're going to die. And then it says there in verse 20, the man turned to his wife and renamed her. He originally named her woman. Some of you are thinking, that's not very endearing. Hey, woman, how you doing? Good to see you. How's it been going today? Tend to the garden. Hi, woman. He renames her Eve, which means the mother of living. The mother of life. 
This is a faith statement for Adam, even in the wake of this judgment, to turn to his wife and go, okay, I'm going to rename her based on what you just said to the serpent. Because she's going to be the offspring of the hope of the world. She's going to bear the Savior of the world that's going to get us back in the garden and fix this situation. So he names her Eve. Know that Moses, again, I'm going to reiterate, he's testifying here to what's being spoken of that will be fulfilled later in Christ. This story is about our Savior. I enjoy Adam's faithful renaming. It's a beautiful faith move. I want to show you Eve's faith move. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, since that page is open, I want to read this passage to you. I want to show you something that takes place in Eve that's sort of obscure in our translations. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, that's knew her in an intimate way, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain's name comes from the verb, it's a derivative of the verb, to get. And then at the end of this verse 1, it says, Eve says this, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I looked at other translations, NAS, NIV, and most of our other translations that I know of basically translate this the same way, with the help of the Lord. I've gotten myself a man. Some commentators even handle this as Eve being sort of proud and look at what I've done here. With the help of the Lord, I've finally gotten a man. I found some interesting Hebrew truths here. It actually looks like the direct translation from the Hebrew here is I have gotten a man, a play on words for Cain's name. I have gotten a man, namely the Lord. I have gotten a man, namely the Lord. See, I fear what may have happened here, what the translators may have done, is they may have diminished Eve's expression of faith and hope that this first child would be the God-man that he had promised them. It never occurred to me before just this week, preparing for this sermon, why wouldn't they have been looking for him right off the bat? He promised as he shared the judgment on the snake that her offspring would crush his head. Why wouldn't she expect that off the bat? Why would she think that's going to be thousands of years later? Why would she think that? The direct translation here, I found an early targum. Targums are like commentaries from Hebrew rabbis. Early, early, early stuff. I found an early targum of Jonathan that's, that translated this passage this way. I have gotten a man the angel of Yahweh. It seems the straightforward reading of Eve's words suggests she was hoping Cain was the Lord himself made man who would fix this problem to get them back in the garden and crush Satan's head. I don't know why she wouldn't be hoping for that right off the bat. Man. 
It makes me realize as she's anticipating that, as she proclaims that, if we take the, just the face value reading of that passage in the Hebrew, that this is the earliest advent. Brad and Scott and I have been talking about what we're doing this year in December. And this year in December, for the first time in the life of our church, we're going to exercise and practice and enjoy Advent leading up to Christmas morning. Realizing that we need to learn to anticipate. As we're reading and studying Eve's response here, we're realizing that she's doing an early version of it. She's anticipating what's in store because she and Adam are the only ones who ever truly tasted what they lost. We've been numb over thousands of years. We don't know what what they've lost. We read about it. They're the only ones who truly tasted it. And here she is, it seems, anticipating. This is the head crusher. I've gotten myself the head crusher, the God-man. Christmas morn, she's thinking. Of course, we know the rest of the story. We know the story didn't go that well. Because then this one that she seems to put so much hope in turns and kills his brother, Abel. So two things are lost there. First, she realized, well, it must not have been Cain. Cain must have been the offspring of the serpent. And it couldn't have been Abel because Abel's dead. So then they conceive again in a third child. It seems she, in some ways she may have lost some hope that she and Adam could bear this Christ child. Because this third child is named Seth, which means to a point. It seems maybe she's thinking at this point, maybe he will be appointed as the father of this head crusher. And then Seth names his first child Enosh, which means man. And it's no surprise that in Daniel chapter 7 that Christ is referred to as the son of man. What I'm realizing as I'm studying these early people, I'm realizing these people had some sort of anticipation of the Christ child. When Moses is speaking of this Christ child for the first time, it's not going to be brand new information for this people. From the outset of humanity, it seems, they've been aching for the Christ. Look at Genesis chapter 5. Here's another daddy, in this case, hoping that his son would be the one. And his son was a version of one, but he wasn't the one. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah. And he's thinking, man, maybe he's going to be the one to get us back in the garden. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. This one will get us back in the walking of the cool of the day relationship with the Lord. This one will get it done. And of course, we know Moses' story, or Noah's story. Later on after the flood, he proves, no, he's not that man either. And the generation comes and generation goes over thousands and thousands of years and all creation is 
aching for the Christ child, and those who are looking like Simeon and Anna are looking for the Christ child. Where is he? The Son of Man. Where is this head crusher? Where is he? Generation after generation comes and goes until Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. You understand that connection? Born of woman, just like it was spoken and testified to by Moses 1,500 years earlier. The offspring of Eve, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We could put in there and get us back in the garden. Ha! Yes! Man, that, I don't know about you, but that just climbs all over me. I love when things come full circle, and that is the ultimate of coming full circle right there. Moses testified to it. God testified to it in the creation account and what unfolded there and the, the curse that's meted out on Satan. Moses testified to it in the recounting of it. 1,500 years worth of passing it down through tribe and clan and family. And there in the fullness of time in Bethlehem, God sent his son and that seed, that offspring of Eve, that head crusher finally showed up. Born of a woman. And then ultimately, 30 years later on Golgotha, he crushes the head of the serpent. He does what God said he was going to do. On the cross, it's here that Satan's usurped dominion is destroyed and crushed. This thing has come full circle and it becomes the martial message throughout the rest of our New Testaments. John 12, 31, Jesus says in the final hours leading up to the cross, he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now I'm going to crush his head. It's on. What was testified to five or 1,500 years ago, what was written about that took place however long before that creation of the world, now it's time. And it's going to happen in an unlikely setting, the humiliation of the cross. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He crushed his head through the cross. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, born of a woman, to be that head crusher. Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he may crush the head of the serpent, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Anybody else love that? Does anybody else enjoy that? Does that stir anyone? It's on the cross that the offspring of Eve, Christ, ultimately fulfills what Moses so faithfully testified to 1,500 years earlier. It's on the cross that Christ ultimately fulfills what Eve so eagerly sought. It's on the cross that 
Christ fulfills what Adam so eagerly sought in renaming Eve the mother of life. It's in Christ that what Seth sought is fulfilled. That what Enosh hoped for is fulfilled. That what Lamech sought, rest from our toil, is fulfilled. That's in Christ, the answer to their separation from God and his garden. Man, this proto-euangelion, this Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15, especially Moses testified to this day many things. He testified to the darkness of man's heart. You see it. Might as well have been Monday if it had been you or me. Wednesday, maybe they made it to Wednesday. But it wasn't long before they broke the only commandment. And here you see the grace and the love and the holiness and the justice of our God at work right from the very beginning. And then the hope of a world full of Adams and Eves in the person and work of the offspring of Eve, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the antidote for the serpent's venom. Death has no sting with this antidote. Jesus fulfilled this. Share a passage with you also from Hebrews that's an appropriate response. Just listen to this. It has all new meaning when you read it in light of what we've considered this morning. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It wasn't Cain, Eve. Sorry. And it wasn't Abel, Eve. And you know it's not going to be Seth. Maybe Enosh? No. Lamech? Maybe it's Noah? No. But it's Christ. His blood speaks a better message and fulfills a better reality than the blood of Abel. As I was studying this, I'm thinking to myself, man, I wonder if anybody got this. I wonder how obscure these sort of teachings were and these thoughts. And I considered this. Acts chapter 2. Listen to this passage. In the sermon on the birthday of the church at Pentecost, Peter, of all guys, Peter, I'm going to say the least likely to see things as they really are. The most boneheaded of the disciples, in my opinion. Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He preaches this in a message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, much like Moses was attested, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this offspring of Eve, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The plan that was spoken before judgment was ever even passed on Adam and Eve. Peter saw it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Man. It seems Peter 
The most boneheaded of apostles knew who Moses was talking about. From the moment that God laid eyes on the serpent and pronounced the judgment and the curse, his definite foreknowledge and plan were already in motion. He made a remedy for man's curse before he even pronounced man's judgment. Man, if you don't enjoy that about our God, then I hope the Holy Spirit works that in you. What a good and gracious God we have. What a good and gracious God we have. Think about how do we respond to this. How is this to be more than just an interesting Bible study for us? What are we to do with this? I thought, you know, if Peter has a responsibility to listen and connect the dots... We have a responsibility to do the work of connecting dots. We have the responsibility to do the work of climbing into the skin of this people because they're our people. I teach the third through sixth graders on Wednesday nights. And one of the first things I do every Wednesday night is I put on the board a timeline. It's the same ugly scrawled timeline that I used on this wall behind us a few weeks ago. It's just more legible for them, I think, I hope. But on that timeline, there's God creating man. But no, we, actually, we start with Abe. That's where we start with Abraham. And then there's Moses. And there's David. And then there's Christ. And then there's guys like Athanasius, St. Nicholas. And then there's guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin. And on the other end of the, the, the continuum, every time my third through sixth graders can nail it, the first thing they put on the board, CF. We're on the storyline because we're not reading about somebody else's story, we're reading about our story. We have a responsibility to climb into this story week after week as if it's our story. If it's just about somebody else, then we've missed it. We were grafted into this people at the cross. When the message went out to the Gentiles, it went to us, and we were grafted into this vine. It became our story. And when it becomes our story and we climb into the skin of this people, then we find that we can learn to anticipate and long with them. When we climb into this moment with Adam and Eve and think about what they lost and think about Eve with excitement saying, I've gotten the God-man. If we can feel that excitement, if we can feel the faith with, with Adam as he turns to Eve and he says, I'm not going to call you woman anymore. I'm going to call you Eve. Because you're the mother of the offspring of Eve. You're going to be the mother of the head crusher. If we can climb into their skin, we can learn to, to advent. We can learn to, to anticipate. And it's with this people that we can learn to want so badly what, would, what was lost in the garden and to want so badly the crushing of the serpent's head and to enjoy when it happened. I want you to imagine two children. Two children, two different families. Let's develop the image a little bit. 
One family, this child is an only child. Another family, this child is a member of a large family, lots of brothers and sisters. This one family with the only child, and no, I'm not picking on any only children family, so this is not, don't project what I'm about to share on you. You understand the point of this in a minute. Play along. This one family with the one child, it's a family of means. For some reason, they just always have had plenty. If they've ever had a need, little Johnny never knew about it. And little Johnny, if he ever had a want or a desire, all he had to do was express it, and it was met just like that. If he wanted a new Lego set, if he wanted a new big wheel, green machine is what we had when I was a kid. Big, awesome Christmas gift, green machine. If he ever wanted anything, it was given to him. He never had to learn to anticipate. He never heard the words from his parents, Johnny, I'm sorry, buddy, but we can't afford that. Maybe when our ship comes in. Maybe, Johnny, you can save up for like the next 10 years and you can get it. Or maybe, Johnny, next Christmas. Johnny never heard those words because Johnny got whatever he wanted right when he got wanted it. Contrast that with little Billy over here in this family. Billy is one kid among many, and Billy often heard the words, sorry, Billy, <laughs> you're going to have to wait. We, my mom and dad are kind of snickering, is it like forever? That'll never happen, but not one to crush him. Billy hears the words often, no, you're going to have to save up for that. That's going to take some time. Consider the difference between the two kids, Johnny and Billy. Which kid's going to appreciate what they have more? What are we as New Testament Christians if we never climb into the skin of our four people? What are we if we never ache with them and pine with them? I've gotten myself the God-man. No, he just killed my secondborn, so it can't be him. And it can't be my secondborn. Maybe it'll be my thirdborn's kid. I've gotten myself the one that's going to make it to where we don't have to work so hard. Maybe it'll be Noah. If we never climb into their story, if we never ache with them, if we never learn to anticipate, then we can come off as the spoiled kids that just got it. But man, if we climb in with them, we learn to anticipate and we learn to wait and then we truly enjoy what we have in Christ. The head crusher. The offspring of Eve. My hope and prayer through the Hebrew preacher's words as he's trying to encourage a confused and dispirited people that what God would do in us is that he would teach us to anticipate. That he would keep us from being confused. That he would keep us from being dispirited. That we would be like children who learn to long for things. Be like children who learn 
to anticipate. This morning I thought our Lord's Supper would be appropriate if we connected it to this message. There's a passage in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 14, that says this. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Other passages you may have read, you can connect to washing our robes. What are we washing them in? It's not some sort of a tide or cheer. We're washing them in blood. Christ's blood is the only thing that cleanses us and gives us righteous clothing like Adam and Eve first wore from the very first sacrifice. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the right tree, to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. This meal that we have every week, you may not realize this, but this meal that we have every week, this is the righteous meal. If there was a meal that evicted mankind from the garden, this is the meal that we eat as we enjoy our presence back in the garden. We don't have to live for something that's going to happen someday when Christ comes back because we've already been translated and transferred from this present age to the age to come. We are already walking in a new kingdom. We are already enjoying that walking in the cool of the day relationship with the living God through what Christ has done. Do you know that? This meal is the garden meal. This is the tree of life meal. This morning as you partake of this bread and this cup, Be intentional about connecting that to go, this is the meal that Adam and Eve should have eaten. And this is the meal that we get to eat by his grace and his mercy because of what Christ has done, because we've been grafted into the vine. Enjoy all those thoughts. Enjoy those realities. When you enjoy those things, that's called worship. So this morning, as we distribute the cup and the bread, meditate on those. Enjoy those as we will, in a moment, we'll eat together from the tree of life. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for this proto-gospel. We are so thankful that before you ever pass judgment on man and woman, that you already made a way and a plan and a predetermined plan for our rescue and our deliverance. And we are so thankful that on the other side of that whole story that you sacrificed something to provide some righteous clothing for us as we hid in the bushes. Lord, we are thankful too that you've invited us to this table back in the garden where we can eat from the proper tree and we confess and acknowledge and enjoy that our tree of life is to eat and drink of Christ, his blood and his flesh. We enjoy that in these next few minutes, Lord. By faith, we enjoy that. I pray that we had a little glimpse of our story this morning. Make our hearts sing, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. You know, some Sundays are real prescriptive, and they sort of give you kind of a plan. You know, here's some things you need to go do. A couple of our order sermons have been really good about that. Some things that their perspective changing, but there's, okay, here's what I'm going to go walk in then in faith. Um, and then some Sundays are sort of storytelling, and they both have an effect on you. The prescriptive sermon, as you go walk in it, you find it's faith, it's a faith journey. And then the storytelling, you find that you're changed un, unknowingly as you just surrender to the story. It's like you almost kind of forget about yourself as you're in the middle of a story. You know, a story that's so amazing, that's so good, you're like, well, I don't even know where I, I don't even, I've forgotten about me. That has a cool effect on you because you find as you come out the other side of the story that you've been changed. And you, you're not even sure how. You just see you play out differently over the course of the week. You make some different decisions where you realize you can tell a young person, um, okay, you shouldn't go do that because God says don't do that. That's sinful. That's, that's a good thing to tell our children at times. There ought to be other times where we tell our children, you know, you don't do that because that's not who you are. That has a different message. This Sunday's message is, this is who you are. And when you enjoy that, that's called faith. When you enjoy that, that's faith. When your heart sings, hearing your story told, that's faith, and it changes you as you enjoy it. You need to learn how to enjoy just enjoyment. As we take our, our supper here together, let's enjoy the ultimate head crusher. Let's enjoy the trouncing that took place at the cross. Can our hearts sing as we take this remembrance? Can we enjoy together our restoration to the garden through what he's done? Can we enjoy together that a room full of Adams and Eves get to eat from the proper tree and this is it? Let's do that in faith together as our hearts sing. Take and eat take and drink let's pray what a good meal Lord what a good and hearty meal it is indeed life giving and we enjoy the new life that we walk in through Christ what a good message what good medicine we're lost in the story this morning Lord and we find ourselves on the other side just enjoying you and enjoying the scandal of it all. We continue to worship you, Lord, in song and giving your greatness. In Christ's name, amen. Is anybody confused or dispirited? If you are, then take and eat some more this week with your family and with small groups. These sort of truths that we consider on a Sunday morning, they migrate from ear and head to heart through conversation. And, and that's worship too. When you talk about things as families, start today over lunch. What'd you think of the sermon, kids? That's a great start. Some of you won't do that just because I suggested that. And you're like, oh, that'll be awkward. It'd be like I'm following orders. I, I'm suggesting it. I'm encouraging it. Humble yourself and say, family, let's do what Ben talked about this morning. Let's sit and talk and eat on this some more. Let's take and eat some more. What did you get out of that, kids? What did you hear? What is our story?
kids? What happened at the very beginning? What did God promise? What did God do? How did he do it? Those are conversations where things migrate from ear and head to heart. When they migrate from ear to head to heart, they find their way back out to hand. And foot. And mouth. As parents and as families, so often we find ourselves teaching and preaching to kids, stop doing that, don't do this, start doing this. Preaching and teaching to the hand. So many churches do it too, and we can find ourselves at times doing that. Don't do this, do do that, don't do this. Preaching to hand and to foot and to mouth. What we should be preaching to and engaging as families is the heart and the story, and that changes the way the hands and the mouth and the feet move. It's a different approach to parenting, a different approach to church. It's not about a bunch of thou shalt nots and thou shouts. It's a, bunch, it's a story that we are embedded in the middle of, a scandalous story that when you're caught up in it, it changes everything. It changes your whole view on life. The symptoms of that change. You can treat the symptoms or you can treat the heart. This is good heart treatment. Man, families, I urge you to do this. Man, I urge you as shepherds to talk with other guys about stuff like this. If you don't have any other guys that you're talking with about faith matters, man, you're missing out. (laughs) I I wouldn't make it without that. I have that in a lot of ways in Scott and Brad. They're my version of what you've got to have. Other guys that you're walking with and talking about things with. You can't go it alone. And families, you need to be processing this. And small groups is a great way to do that. I encourage you to be part of small groups. Lord, this morning as we depart, we pray that we depart changed. And we're thankful in advance already that we have. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.